Hello, Christ Prez. We're beginning a new series today in 2 Corinthians, and I want to give you a little background on this letter before we jump in. You know, Paul had a long and complicated relationship with the Corinthian Christians. Uh, He had planted this church, uh, which you can read about in Acts chapter 18. Later, he got a report that things weren't going very well, and so he wrote them the letter that we now know as 1 Corinthians. Apparently, they rejected a lot of what Paul wrote in that letter and rebelled against his authority, so he visited them again. Uh, This is the painful visit that he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And now he's writing them this letter after that visit to assure them of his love and his commitment to them. Um, this letter is full of love and pain. It's, it's probably the most passionate and personal of all Paul's letters. The Corinthian Christians uh, distrusted Paul as a leader because he was so unlike the kind of leader that they really valued Corinth was this large, beautiful, cosmopolitan place where people valued success, wealth, power, status. The leaders that were celebrated were strong, impressive, good-looking, and powerful. And Paul was none of those things. He was weak. But what Paul declares is that this very weakness is what qualifies him for ministry. And one of the main themes of this entire letter, as we'll see, is power in weakness. And remember, this combination of power and weakness is really at the heart of the gospel. And God saved us through this strange paradox of the cross and resurrection. Christ saved us through weakness by giving up power and succumbing to apparent defeat. He triumphed not despite his weakness and loss of power, but in it and through it. And now, Paul argues, this same dynamic of power in weakness is the pattern for the Christian life. In our weakness, in our struggle, in our suffering even, God's power is made known in and through us. In this season of Eastertide, as we celebrate the good news of Jesus' resurrection, we want to go deep into this pattern of death and resurrection that Jesus has uh, charted for us. You know, what we celebrated two weekends ago, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just some religious tradition that makes us feel good about the coming of spring. I mean, if God really did save the world through the death and resurrection of a condemned criminal, then Easter is not just a nice day to get together with your family and maybe go to church. I mean, it's the center of world history and the secret of the Christian life. Power in weakness. The power of the resurrection comes through the weakness of the cross. It's true for God. It's true for us. Power and weakness, triumph in suffering, life even in death. So that's what we're going to go deep into. I'll draw your attention to our passage. And the first thing I want to point out is that Paul assumes that our lives as Christians will include affliction. The Greek word there is thlipsis. It's the same word that we find in John chapter 16, verse 33, when Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble, affliction, thlipsis. We learned when we were going through Revelation that it can also be translated tribulation. It's the same word. It's one of the terrible realities we live with on this side of Jesus' return. Affliction, tribulation, trouble, suffering. 
This was certainly Paul's reality, and in our passage, he assumes that this will be the reality of all people and all communities of people who follow Jesus. He assumes that Christians and the church will suffer. It's important that we face this as honestly as we can because we tend to resist it. The Corinthians certainly did. I mean, everything in, cor- in uh, Corinthian culture was about glory and honor and power and security. It was about finding the upward path to success and fame and celebrity. Suffering, in contrast, was viewed as a curse. If someone was struggling with pain and affliction, it was seen as a sign of God's displeasure. Affliction was seen as as something to be avoided at all costs. The Corinthian Christians had embraced these ideas. They believed if God loves us, he will flood our lives with health and wealth and happiness. And to the extent that affliction has entered your life, to the extent that you're experiencing pain and suffering and sorrow, something is clearly wrong. The Corinthian Christians had great suspicion about Paul because unlike the successful and wealthy religious leaders in Corinth, Paul was poor, often homeless, and and he was like constantly getting the snot kicked out of him. He seemed to live with an inordinate amount of suffering. How could this guy be worth following? How could God really be with him, they wondered. Well, good thing Christians don't wrestle with this stuff anymore. No, of course, we do still wrestle with this. We still struggle with this. I mean, too often still, Christian faith is held up precisely as a way to avoid affliction or a way to end affliction. Too often we tell ourselves that following Jesus rightly will put us on a road that moves away from trouble, away from tribulation, that the more faithfully we're following Jesus, the less we'll experience pain and sorrow. But the view we consistently get in the New Testament is much more sober. In this world, we will have trouble. Affliction is inevitable. Jesus isn't leading us away from death. He's leading us through it. And it can be really messy and rather mysterious, sometimes just downright confusing, which I don't like. You know, I'm often tempted to try to explain suffering and to make sense of it. You know, and, so, and so, you know, we say things like, you know, maybe we suffer because God is refining us. Maybe we suffer because it's a necessary part of God's plan. Maybe we suffer because it, it's just kind of um, suffering is, is it, it inevitably goes along with us having free will. Maybe we suffer, uh, but, but our suffering in the end doesn't really matter because it's just momentary and eternal joy is waiting for us. See, see we come up with these these theological reasons that that try to justify suffering or or explain suffering. But no, remember, the Christian faith really doesn't try to give a theological explanation for suffering. It doesn't rush to defend the goodness of God in the face of suffering, trying to give some rational account for how God might really be all good and all powerful in the face of our afflictions. It doesn't speculate about God's reasons for allowing suffering. It doesn't guess about God's purposes and our trouble. We just don't have that kind of access to the mind of God. I mean, instead of doing any of that in our passage, Paul just assumes that affliction is one of the realities we'll experience as we follow Jesus. He doesn't give an account for why we suffer here. He just assumes that we will. We will be afflicted. Affliction is inevitable. 
So there's no argument. There's no explanation. Instead, what Paul is doing, I think, is he's trying to help us see the true context of our affliction. He's reminding us of the story that we're in, and he's pointing us to the reality of God, this God who he calls the God of all comfort. Clearly, comfort is the theme of this passage. I mean, in five verses, Paul uses the word comfort 10 times. See, affliction is inevitable, but with our affliction and in our affliction is this God of all comfort. So the vision of the Christian life that Paul holds up for us isn't one of moving upward to prestige and power and recognition, but one of encouraging others and being encouraged by others right in the midst of our suffering. Just as Paul assumes that the Christian life is one of suffering and setbacks, he also assumes, because of the gospel, that in the midst of it all, there will be encouragement and confidence and joy. And so what Paul is doing, I think, is he's equipping the Corinthian church and he's equipping us to face affliction by being ready to receive and share comfort right in the midst of it. Let me quickly just highlight several of the comforting realities Paul shows us in these few verses. First, he reminds us that we are not our own, that we belong to God, and this is a comforting reality. Um, He does this in a couple of ways. In his opening greeting, Paul addresses the church of God or God's church. You know, uh, ekklesia is the Greek word, and in Paul's day, it could be used really of any gathering of people. But Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that they are not just any gathering of people. They are the called out, gathered people of God. They belong to the one who created the heavens and the earth. This is a comforting truth for me personally to remember at times when I worry about the church and the church's future. I mean, I I wonder sometimes if pastors tend to do that more than others. But um, during this this past year and this year of the pandemic, I have worried about the church, not just about Christ Pres, but about um, the, the church as a whole. What will its future look like after this? It's been a comfort to me to remember that ultimately we're not the ones responsible for the life of the church. God is. The church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And so the church, in in the most uh, true, uh, in, in the profoundest way, is always in good hands, regardless of the circumstances we face. Well, another way Paul reminds us that we're not our own is by referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. It's one of the earliest Christian confessions. And it's so, um, it's so common that it, it kind of, uh, it just passes over our ears without phasing us. But remember, in Paul's day, a Lord was one to whom a servant belonged. And so it's not just that the church belongs to God. It's that you belong to Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus has claimed you and he has made him, excuse me, he has made himself responsible for you. The old Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And do you remember the answer? That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
See, family, we are not our own. <coughs> Excuse me. So he reminds us that we're not our own. Second, he reminds us that we have a father who loves us. This is another comforting reality. See, God isn't only the one to whom the church belongs. God is our father. And he's the father of mercies. In other words, he's a good father, a compassionate father, a father who cares for us, a father who loves us. He's a father who cares for us in our sufferings. You know, speaking as a parent, I, I know that I, I want to say that I love my children um, all the time, but they especially have my attention when they're hurting, you know, when they are afflicted, when they're suffering. Unlike the gods of the Greeks and Romans who were indifferent really to human pain, God in Christ is this tender God who comes alongside us in our sorrow and, <clears throat> and who tends to our pain. And um, we get a lot of father imagery in scripture. We also get mother imagery applied to God. Think of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, says the Lord. So that's a second comforting reality that we have this father of mercies, this father who loves us. Third, Paul reminds us of our union with Christ. In verse five, he says that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Another way of translating that could be that Christ's sufferings overflow in us. Now, there are different ways of trying to make sense of what Paul means by this. <clears throat> I tend to see it as an expression of Christ's deep identification with us in our suffering. He identifies with us so deeply that our sufferings just are his sufferings. His sufferings become our sufferings. Our affliction, his affliction. His affliction, our affliction. You remember when Jesus confronted Saul, the persecutor of the church on the way to Damascus? What did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the people who belong to me? No, he didn't even say that. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus was being afflicted in the affliction of the church. And, and, I, and I wonder if what Paul is saying is simply that this is still true. I mean, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings because Christ shares abundantly in our sufferings. So much so that they're just one and the same. When you suffer, Jesus suffers. When you're afflicted, he's afflicted. I, Jesus makes our suffering his own. You know, maybe that's part of what it means to call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. We're affirming that, like, <laughs> he's really with us, even in the darkest depths. And so what that means, family, is that you are never alone in your affliction. It's never just you suffering. Uh, at least it's you and Jesus suffering. Jesus is right there with you, sharing abundantly in your suffering, just as you share in his. So that's part of us being un united with Christ, and that's... That's a third comforting reality that Paul reminds us of. A fourth is this. <clears throat> he reminds us of our experiences of deliverance from affliction. And, and he reminds us by, by just pointing out one of his own. In verses eight, 
through 10, he tells the Corinthians about his own experience of suffering in Asia, Asia, um, so much so that he was in despair. He was brought so low by affliction. Now, there are different um, speculations about what this experience of suffering might have been that Paul is referencing. Paul just doesn't tell us. Um, Whatever it was, it felt like death to Paul. I mean, he was so far beyond the limits of anything he could handle that he was ready to give up on his life entirely. He was brought to a place where he just couldn't rely on himself at all, but had to trust entirely in the one who raises the dead. And this one delivered him. I bet you can think of times in your life when you've been brought to the end of yourself, to the end of of trusting in yourself, and God has delivered you from affliction. I think of ways that we've heard about that happening in the life of our community. Even this past week, we we heard um, several discouraging reports about um, Kirby's slow recovery, and then and then just a sign of deliverance when when suddenly there was relief. We heard about this miraculous healing in Wendy Lindner's life when when she was being pressed down and afflicted and and almost to the point of despair. And then suddenly the good news that, oh my goodness, the cancer is gone. Deliverance from affliction. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. You see, Paul's experience of past deliverance fuels his confidence about future deliverance. This is another comfort. When you're in the midst of affliction and suffering, can you recall past experiences of God's deliverance? Well, finally, um, Paul reminds us of resurrection. We set our hope on a God who will ultimately deliver us from death itself, not by allowing us to avoid death, remember, but by raising us from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead. And so to paraphrase D.A. Carson, in the ultimate scheme of things, whatever affliction you're facing now is nothing, nothing that a good resurrection can't cure. So those are some of the ways that comfort comes to us, even in this passage. We're not our own. We have a father who loves us. We're united to Jesus Christ who shares in our sufferings. We can remember our personal experiences of deliverance from affliction, and we can set our hope on our ultimate deliverance from death when the God of all comfort raises us from the dead. These are perspective-altering realities, family, if, if we can just embrace them, if we can recall them, if we can learn to dwell on them and in them. Paul is showing us that when we suffer, It's like we're put in a special position to receive and to experience the incredible love and comfort and power of God right in the midst of our greatest struggles. It's like we get access to the comfort and grace of God that that is only accessible from the place of affliction, from the place of tribulation and trouble. What if we learn to see our afflictions as doorways? to the comfort of God. 
What, what if there are things of God that we can only know from the place of lowliness and affliction? Because it is there and only there that we really come to know the power of the resurrection. You know, C.S. Lewis said at the end of Mere Christianity that nothing that has not died will ever be resurrected. That's true in an ultimate way in the end. And it looks like that's the pattern of life that Paul is holding up for us. Comfort in affliction, resurrection from death. Think about one painful or difficult thing happening in your life right now. Maybe something that you wish would just go away. What, what, if, what if your perspective was changed and altered? What if instead of seeing that as a barrier to a happy life, you saw it as a doorway to God's grace, an avenue by which God's comfort might flow into your life? See, that, I believe, was Paul's experience. And it's the pattern that he's offering up for us, that just as we share in suffering, we would also receive the comfort of God in our sufferings. But there's one more huge piece of this. Look again at verse four. The God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, the comfort we receive is never only for us. It's always for others. As we experience God's grace in our suffering, we become vessels of grace and comfort and mercy for others. The comfort we receive catches us up in the ministry and mission of God to others. The love we receive is meant to like overflow and spill out into the lives of others. How can we steward the comfort God has given us in our own pain for the good of others? How can we, how can we hear the pain of others more readily and, and rather than moving away, stepping back, actually enter into it, move toward it with the comforting presence of God? There's an invitation here to, to practice and to learn more how to comfort one another. There's also, I think, an invitation here to learn and to practice receiving comfort from each other and to receive it as the very comfort of God. You know, sometimes, oh, what's that classic story about about the guy praying to be rescued from a river where he's drowning and um, he just keeps praying to God and like, um, three different people come along and, and offer him help in different ways, but, but he just stays there in the river drowning, waiting for God to miraculously intervene. And uh, family, I wonder if we can learn more to receive the comfort that we extend to one another as the comfort of God flowing in us and through us for each other. couple of questions uh, to leave you with. First, are you close enough to know, um, are you close enough to God to know his comfort? You know, we can only share what we have received. The comfort of the gospel has um, to, to deeply and personally um, come to us if we are ever to share it with others. <clears throat> I flew to Texas last week 
with the boys and you know it's it's always a little jarring when they say this but they they talk about you know in the event of an emergency these these masks are going to descend from from the plane and, and that you're to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your children and and as a parent you think oh that sounds horribly wrong you know like i want i want to make sure that they're okay first um but the same principle applies here. Like we need to know the intimate love and comfort of God ourselves before we're really equipped and able to help others. And so do you know it? Have you experienced God's tender care? Look to him. Cry out to him. Spend time with him. Settle yourself in a place this week where you can receive the good news of God's great love for you in Christ. And then a second question is this, are you close enough to others to know their pain and to offer comfort? You know, the Christian life is a communal life. The solitary Christian out on their own, disconnected from the believing community, that's just a contradiction in terms. The Christian life is always a life with others. We're called to be deep enough in one one another's lives that we can know each other's pain and be able to share comfort we have received in ways that are uh, practical and tangible and real and relevant. Is this the kind of Christian life we're living? Are, Are you in close community with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you able to share God's comfort with them and to receive comfort from them as from God. <clears throat> so, comfort in sorrow, resurrection from death. Leslie Newbegin was once asked uh, whether he was an optimist or a pessimist, and he said, I'm neither. I'm neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. See, the the Christian life, the true Christian life, it's like, it's more more sadness and it's more joy and it's all at the same time. It's like, it's like more pessimistic and it's more optimistic all at the same time. It's death and it's resurrection. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We bear the sufferings of others, but we know the joy and hope of the resurrection. See, more more sadness and more joy all at the same time, all at once. As long as we're not home, as long as the kingdom has not yet come in fullness, we'll always have times of trouble, tribulation, suffering, affliction, difficulty. We may even have times of oppression and persecution. I mean, most Christians in the world and most Christians in history know this. Ask the Christians in China or in Syria or in Iraq or in Egypt. Ask ask Christians who lived in the first and second centuries um, about trouble and tribulation. I mean, this is what it means to be the people of God. Paul just assumes it. This is part of what it means to be connected to Jesus Christ. Some of you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound good. I didn't ask for that. But can you see the beauty of it? 
Paul says this crazy thing in Philippians chapter four. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. See, we're not to seek out trouble and affliction, but we are to seek out Jesus. And as we seek him and as we follow him, we are inevitably put on this low road of suffering love and trouble and affliction will come to us. I mean, that in turn puts us in this posture where we can receive the comfort of God. And having received that love, we're called to share it with others. One last thing, verse 11. You also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. See, Paul knows that one of the ways the, the God of all comfort brings comfort and deliverance from affliction into our lives is through prayer. And so there's this invitation before us to go to God in prayer and to pray for one another, especially to pray for one another in our places of trouble, in our places of tribulation and affliction. So I wanna invite you just on your own in your homes to do that now before you come to the table. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.